Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Relations. Uh, this is your co-host Rob Hahn, and on the other line is my other co-host, the Gossip Queen, Greg Robertson. Greg, are you there? <laughs> Hello, Rob. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I think it would be amazing if we did the entire podcast with you using that voice. You, <laughs> you know, it's I saw Sam, like, I guess he pulled two quotes out of our yeah. <laughs> last podcast. And I don't remember the context or anything of, like, saying Gossip Queen. It was like totally, hey. yeah, talking about, like, I'm the drama queen and you're the Gossip King. I said, I don't want to be the drama king. I to... <laughs> well, I guess it is Pride Month. So, hey, there you go. <laughs> That's right. I just yeah. wanted to say congratulations, Rob, for your nomination for uh, Most Innovative Best Podcast Video from Inman News. Hey, and congratulations to you as well, Greg. Uh, oh, well, thank you very much. We are so innovative, aren't we? Yes, we, we are. The soul of innovation up in here. It's so sad when, when just telling the truth becomes innovative. In this, <laughs> in this society, it's, it's truly innovative when you just tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well, you know, hey, look, if, if we win, um, what is that saying that I like to say? With great power comes great responsibility. And with very right. little power comes very little responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hey, thanks to uh, all, all uh, listeners yeah. who might have voted for us. And uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm still curious how they come up with them. They had, there's about eight others or nine others in our category, yeah. but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a thrill to actually think that people are listening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> imagine that, right? So, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I was actually really just surprised. And I mean, there's some other great ones on there also. I mean, I, yeah. I mentioned this in my blog post, but I, I really do love Emily, what she's doing with uh, Scratch That. And uh, Definitely. I've listened to a few episodes of Russ Cofano's um, yep. uh, Gradually Then Suddenly. So, yep. yeah. And then, you know, Tom Ferry is always a... Always. Yeah, he's always great. So. Like none of those guys cuss as much as we do. No, no, no. We're, no. we're innovators in the foul language department. <laughs> I know that because every time I upload these things, I, I always plus, I always click on the button that says explicit. <laughs> <laughs> so, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fuck that shit. <laughs> Innovating till the day we die. All right, anyway. <laughs> Once again, thanks to all the listeners who might have voted for us, and uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, I thought we might start by you know, like talking to our listeners, because, you know, I think it was the first time this happened where someone actually tweeted a question to us mm -hmm. from a podcast. And uh, this comes from Nick Kremitis, who is the CEO of South Carolina Realtors. Great guy, just a wonderful human being. And uh, he actually asked us a question on Twitter, and I thought... In the spirit of audience care, of love for our listeners, we should start by answering his question. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. I, I love feedback. Love uh, anything anybody wants us to talk about. All right. We, well, we is, always need ideas. That's right. So this is from Nick Kremitis. He is at Kremitis, K-R-E-M-Y-D-A-S on Twitter. His question is, uh, he was talking about the episode we did about DOJ scrutiny of compensation. And he asked, would be interested to hear their take on one point they didn't cover, the public interest argument of having representation on the buyer side, and whether that overrides other issues. So, Mr. Uh, Gossip King, uh, what, what do you think? What's your take on it? Public interest argument, having buyer representation. So does it make sense for a person who's making the biggest purchase of their life to be represented? 
I think that's a, a big yes. Okay. But the public interest argument overweighing other things basically says, even though there might be this anti-competitive, even though there might be some sort of harm to the seller in that they have to pay for the buyer's agent, there's still this public interest in having that buyer be represented that should outweigh you know, the system that we have. Do you know what I mean? You don't solve it. I mean, this is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater thing to me. There's ways of solving that issue, but still keeping, uh, you know, somebody who, who wants some sort of consultation or advisor on, on making a big purchase mm-hmm. um, there as well, right? I mean, I don't know if he's saying get rid of it all, but I mean, that seems a little bit extreme. No, I think what he's saying is, even if there are these antitrust problems, even if, there, if, even if the DOJ thinks that, you know, having this sort of cooperating compensation is problematic, sort of the good outweighs the bad. Do you know what I mean? Like the public interest of having a buyer have representation outweighs the bad of having the seller pay for that representation. I mean, I think that's kind of what the question is about. I think it's a tough one. Oh, that's a good see. question. You right? Yeah, yeah, I see it. I guess I was taking it almost the opposite of what he was. I was looking at the other side of that. No, no, I think he's saying like, even if there are some problems with this, isn't there a strong public policy, public interest argument for having buyers be represented? And since we know that buyers can't pay you know, at the moment when they're plundering their retirement savings and selling everything they own to come up with a down payment, like, isn't there a public interest argument for having the seller pay for that, right? Because ultimately, the seller's going to just, you know, absorb it into the price of the home or what have you. Right, right, right. It's a really interesting point. I mean, can we think of other examples where things might not seem to be... That's what um, I'm thinking of, you know? Like, even if it's bad, it's better than the alternative kind of deal. It's like the lesser of two evils, you know, where, where we have those policies through public policy. I mean, yeah, maybe health insurance, maybe. I mean, for whatever reason, I, I kind of feel this like Citizen United kind of argument, right? <laughs> I don't know why, but it's like yeah. corporations are people, damn it. Because if you, if you don't say that, it just unravels a whole other thing, right? I guess the closest thing we could come to, maybe I could think of is something like health insurance, right? Where like certain insurance plans require coverage for pregnancy. And a bunch of young, healthy men are paying, you know, for that in part through their premium. You know, something like that. Right, I right. Think would be the closest analogy. You know, I, I mean, there, and there's never going to be something that's a perfect public policy or perfect policy, no. right? I think in every situation you can find some sort of edge case that like, well, yeah, but you know what? If this, this, and this happens at this yeah. time, he's going to get screwed. So we can't yeah. do this, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes perfect is the enemy of good, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say this and then maybe we'll get into it, but it does seem to me that if Nick and the industry as a whole is going to try and make that argument that, look, there's this huge public interest in having these buyers be represented by professionals when they're making the biggest purchase in their lives, you know, 30-year mortgage, the whole thing, right? And this is coming at a time when they're really literally spending every dime that they have to try and be able to get into their home, right? There's a really strong public policy argument for that. You know what? I actually think we help our case a lot as an industry if we started having a lot more pro bono representation. It's something I've actually talked about in different contexts in a post long ago. Because again, I come out of the legal background, right? And lawyers do pro bono all the time. Where they don't charge a client, they do it for free because they're saying, you know, this particular person needs representation. Maybe it's unjustly accused of a crime or it's a civil issue, but they they can't afford a lawyer. We're going to do it for free. If the industry did that, I think more often, 
I think that we have a much stronger argument for saying that public policy outweighs the bad. So, yeah, it, it, that kind of reminds me of a, a quote. I think it was actually in Emily's last podcast with Glenn Kelman, mm-hmm. where he he talks to his agent. He says he talks to his agents and like, you know, you're going to get those deals that are you know relatively easy. I don't think any real estate deal is really easy ever, but mm-hmm. but the ones where it's hard, where single mom saved yeah. a lot wants to get out. Yeah. Those are the deals that make you your reputation. That that makes your rep. Yeah, that's the ones that you know. Yeah make you special, right? You're always going to come across the ones that are kind of, uh, you know, garden variety, but those are the ones where you really, you make your medal. This sounds a little bit like that, you know, I'm not saying pro bono, but you know. No, but why not pro bono? If if we as an industry, so take Nick, right? Take South Carolina Realtors. If South Carolina Realtors as an organization wants to say that there's a huge public interest in having buyers represented before you know, we go to the government and say, you guys should keep things the way they are. I, I feel like it helps the argument strongly. If South Carolina realtors had some program that says, if you're a uh, middle income, if you're below certain, you know, income right. or whatever, we're going to represent you for free. Like there's this pro bono realtor program, right? And maybe that's, you know, some of the costs are covered by like realtor dues. I, I mean, I don't know. There's different ways. Like if if Redfin really want, wanted to do something like that, they could say, look, um, if you're below a certain uh, wealth or threshold, income threshold, we're going to represent you for free. I'm not suggesting like that's the way it ought to be. I'm saying if we're making the argument that there's a huge public interest in having buyers be represented, then we, the industry, should probably take the first step at actually doing that. I agree with that. Yeah. So hopefully that answers your question. That's our take on, on the question. But, you know, that does lead us into kind of the whole discussion of brokers in general, right? Because that's kind of what's been in the news. Greg, you, you mentioned that you were getting a lot of questions about this. The kind of questions I was getting is, you know, Compass recently announced that um, they're doing some sort of, I don't want to call it shakeup, right? But mm-hmm. I guess it is, right? So yeah. two of their kind of senior people are leaving. Right. One of them is taking over some of their responsibilities are looking for a new product guy. And then it's, I guess it's saying that Mr. Refkin, the uh, CEO is, is going to be more focused on product. Right. Mm-hmm. And is this like, what's this a sign of? And I think, I think the sign that Robert Refkin is, is really starting to focus on product is probably a good one because for all the talk about this being this great technology company and everything else, right? you haven't really seen anything. In fact, you know, what you've seen is like, Mr. Revkin making a lot of apologies for rollouts and mm-hmm. they famously were, were going to make everything great themselves, but they bought contextually, right? So there's a lot of, you know, as far as the product, it's I don't think they're kind of delivering on the brand message. They're kind of delivering on their 20%, you know, market share as they as they begin to acquire, but that, you know, we're going to be a great tech company. Mm-hmm with great products, it hasn't really come to fruition yet. And that, that stuff's very hard. Right. Um, so that's, that's all I can attribute it to. You know, there was some Inman article about them maybe possibly going for an IPO. I mean, that's just, I can't imagine that, especially after some of the public comments that they've made where they haven't even thought about how to monetize everything really or get profitable. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just, it's just kind of a crazy thing. And then on the opposite side, you see this like, you know, giant of real estate, realogy, right? Who are just in the throes of this market depression of- Getting hammered. I think they're getting hammered. I mean, their stock was $6.85 yesterday as I looked at it. 
And then there was this article that came out from, I think, a cohort of yours or some of you. Uh, uh, well, I know, yeah, yeah. I yeah some of you know about how things have reached a tipping point and, you know, Realogy and those guys are, these traditional brokers are kind of the old guard and the new guys like Redfin, I think he also mentioned EXP and mm-hmm. I forget what the other brokerage was. Might, might've been Remax, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, Remax, those guys yeah, are, no. are old school, right? But I mean, the new guys would be Redfin and like a EXP, right? And those are the ones right. to watch. Right. So yeah, I mean, lots of like, again, you know, and now that they're going to, all their agents are going to have to start do pro bono work. I mean, it's going to be really <laughs> tough going forward, man. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> no, like, here's the thing. Like, I, I actually, um, John Campbell's a friend of mine, and he's he's probably my favorite analyst uh, on Wall Street. And he covers real estate stocks, you know, and he covers not just, the, you know, the four or five, right? That's kind of really directly, really. He also covers guys like First American and Fidelity and, you know. Like mm-hmm. builders, you know, like all mortgage, uh, lending tree, you know, he covers a lot of public stocks. And uh, what's funny is like, you know, that when he talked about the tipping point and how he's, they're wiping the slate clean and looking at it afresh, you know, that's something that he and I talked about yeah. a lot over the past few months. So I don't want to say that like, I've influenced the man, but, you know, maybe I influenced the man a little bit because, you know, we're, <laughs> this podcast is super innovative, as you know, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> No, that was that. You know, that was. I remember you just said that, but it did kind of that. That phrase did pop out of me when I read that. Where he's wiping the slate clean, and that's you know, yeah, for for an analyst to say that. Yeah. I mean, that's you got to be pretty motivated or pretty like you know. It's a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal because this is. He's been one of the biggest bulls for Realogy. He's you know like his um, Realogy mm. previous to this one was something along the lines of they're going through some short term pain, but. You know, they're going to turn around and the second quarter, second half of the year looks really good. They're becoming much more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. So he was, he was still very much of a bull on Realogy and he's no longer a bull. And I think it really has a lot to do, not with Realogy, because he does say this in the note, that he still has faith in management, as do I. I think Realogy management is some of the best in the industry. The issue really has more to do with that tipping point that he talked about, where things are shifting. We are at a really interesting transition tipping point away from kind of the traditional old models of brokerage to this whole new world that no one's quite yet figured out. And I think it's maybe connected to the Compass story as well, because look, I mean, Compass, you know, they're not public, but they certainly have, you know, investors, they certainly have people they're talking to. And I get the feeling, and I have no, this is just a feeling. I have no evidence, no, nothing to back this up. That Robert Refkin might have been getting some questions from the money people, like, so aren't you guys realogy? Right? Because right, yeah, from right. a model standpoint, right? I mean, it's a split based model, 70, 30, whatever, you know, uh, really attractive splits. They're spending their money in acquisition. Yeah, you have this tech platform, but realogy also says they have a tech platform. The comment about not quite knowing how to monetize. Yeah, where, where's the pony, right? Where's the pony? Yeah, but, you know, like the typical monetization methods that you would see brokers do would be ancillary services, affiliated services, right? Right. Mortgage, title, escrow, whatever. Well, Realogy has all those things. Realogy has mortgage. It has title. It has the largest relocation network in the, in the world. I mean, it's got all of those things and Realogy's getting hammered. Why are you different, Compass? I think that might have been a question, a pressure point he's been getting, which then makes him go, you know what, we need, we can't, if their thought is one day we're going to go public, 
they're not going to be able to go public by saying we're like a newer, better realogy. You know what I mean? Like that. Right. They're not going to say that they're consumer focused because they're absolutely the antithesis no. of that. They're right. agent focused. Right. There's enough evidence out there to talk about we're all about the agent and you should charge 7%, 10%. Yeah. Okay. Right. Good luck with that. You know, so I think maybe this is a pivot for Compass, you know, with an IPO, you know, in the future saying that they can't go public on a brokerage multiple. They have to go public on a technology company multiple, right? And this was a big problem that Redfin faced when they went public. There was a lot of discussion around, all right, do we value Redfin like a tech stock or do we value like a brokerage stock, right? And yeah, Redfin but it's company. way more easier, I think, to look at Redfin as a technology company right. multiple than it is Compass by a long shot. Right, because Redfin's got the 30 million you know, monthly uniques and it's growing 20% a year. Compass doesn't. So for Compass to you know, go public and be valued as a tech stock, they're going to have to show something on the product side. So I think it makes perfect sense that you know, Refkin and the whole team is really refocusing on kind of the technology platform, this product thing, and they're going to have to show something. And you're right. I mean, to, to this point, we haven't seen anything right, from Compass that's you know, really sort of uh, you know, game-changing, world-shaking. You know, it, it, we haven't seen anything like Open Door come out of it. We haven't seen anything like you know, some massive new website, uh, uh, AI-driven search. It, like, we haven't seen any of that. Right? We've just seen really good productivity tools and really good design that appeals to agents, and they're getting the best agents, and they're getting market share. But the fundamental high enough. It's almost like if I, if, you know, as you're saying this, it makes me think of the analogy of Compass wants to be Goldman Sachs, not Charles Schwab. Right. Right. They want the higher net worth market, and right. you know, it takes you know, in order to go work for Goldman Sachs, you got to fucking be the brainiac, right? Yeah. And and they're they're going up for high wealth individuals, right. right? They're, I mean, it's still you can buy a stock from freaking. Charles Schwab, right? Any or TD Ameritrade or something, right? But uh, anybody can do that. That's still essentially a lot of times the same service, right? But yeah. it's like this different level, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's yeah, yeah. We're Goldman Sachs. We're not, you know, we're yeah. not Charles Schwab. Clearly, I mean, he said on stage once with Ryan, and I think we were both in the room at CEO Connect in January. Talked about, I'm not jealous of any of Realogy's brands except maybe Sotheby's, right? right. So, like that's that's clearly the market that he's going after. But in either case, though, I mean, I think both Realogy and Compass, and for that matter, by extension, literally every single brokerage in North America right now who is still you know, on the traditional split-based model, they're going to face these questions. We're at a tipping point. What are you guys doing? And you know, so what? I, I've been talking for the last two, three years and annoying a lot of audiences and pissing people off because I'd get on stage and do a presentation and talk about how traditional brokerage is dead and it's dying. And people are like, you're crazy and you know, you know what you're talking about, all those things. And I'm like, well, because the economics just don't make any sense. And it, it comes down to this in a way, right? And you know, like people like John Campbell and others have really noticed. I know there was a, another, I want to say it was Merrill Lynch, maybe, who did a big note when they downgraded Realogy. One of the things they talked about was how they can see how all of Realogy's moves and all these things benefit the agent, but they can't see how this benefits the shareholder. And here's the essential problem that brokerage somehow has to figure out. They have to somehow solve. It's this. In every other industry that I can think of, I don't care what, like every other industry, you want your people, whether they're employees or independent contractors or what have you, 
you want your people to be as productive as possible, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, the company make more money when your employee is more productive. In real estate, you actually don't want your agent to be that productive because then the economics go upside down, right? On a split-based model, they might start on a 70-30, but then once they pass a certain threshold or do a certain amount of business, now they're at 80-20 and then 85-15 and 90-10. You know what I mean? Like, we know this. And the super agents, you know, once you get to a certain, like, you have a team and you're doing $100 million, like, you, you can essentially write your own ticket and the brokerage is likely losing money on you in a lot of cases. That dynamic, like, I don't, you know, like, that has to be addressed. So brokers are in this bizarre position where you want some top, top producers from a brand standpoint and market share and name and, you know, having a yard sign everywhere. But you really don't want those guys to do more than that. Like, you want to get a whole bunch of newbies. There's a, there's a sweet spot, right? Yeah. That, you know, yeah. Like four to six transactions, something like that. Because you also don't want the guys to do one deal every two years because there's not enough business. And that, that to me is like the challenge. And it's, it just doesn't make any sense, right? So until the industry, until brokerage have figured out, how do you solve that problem? Like you're going to get these questions. You're going to, I mean, everyone's going to look at it the same way and just ask, like, it's great for your agents. What's it do for the shareholder? What's it do for the owner? What's it do for you? And that's, that's the problem, man. Yeah. I think I maybe heard a speaker say this, or maybe I'm making it up myself, but make it up yourself. It just seems that the, the flow has been with real estate. It started out very broker centric. Correct. And then you got, you know, the remaxes in where it kind of shifted to kind of agent centric. Right. And now the shift is consumer centric. Right. That was me. Right. That was you. Okay. <laughs> no, but it wasn't just so me. smart. I'm just copying people that, you know, have been saying this for 10 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, we've been talking about this for 10 plus years. It's, it's just very, very difficult for brokers to be consumer centric. And I think the threat that's coming, though, Greg, is that there are brokers that are truly consumer centric. Now, whether you agree with them or not, whether you like their strategy or not, at least from a a philosophy from a, a mindset standpoint, they are. And I'm pointing to guys like Redfin. I'm pointing to guys like Rex, who the industry just completely despises and hates. Yeah. And again, I could see why they do. And I, I have some of my issues you know, with uh, the whole model. But fact is, at least they're starting from the position of we need to be much more consumer-centric. It needs to be our consumer delight. What do we do in order to do that and stay in business? We're going to have W2 employees. It's the only way. Because when our W-2 guys get more productive, we, we make more money. Whereas on an independent contractor split-based type model, we don't. So I think that's, that's what the rest of the world is seeing, those types of models that are, are emerging and growing like weeds. And then you've got you know, all the institutional real estate. So the you know, iBuyer movement, guys like Knock and Fly Homes and you know, some of the other really interesting stuff like partial ownership, fractional ownership. Mm-hmm. All of those things are happening. And if I'm an investor, I'm looking at this going, yeah, given this, what are the incumbents doing? What is Remax, Realogy, Home Services? What are these guys doing? And what they're seeing is a lot more of like, we just need to be much more innovative and have products and services to our agents so they can serve their customer better. It's like, that's great. How do you make money doing that? Yeah, and, and it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tougher and tougher for these guys to to kind of compete. So, you know, all of them have now some sort of iBuyer initiative, right? Right. At well, least in name. You know, Carol Williams has got bigger 
problems than iBuyer, right? They, they're still mm-hmm. fending off AXP, right? Realogy has got way bigger problems than iBuyer, right? Mm-hmm. It's like almost they have like a checklist. Well, we'll, we'll add that to the checklist so we can put on our listing presentation that says, yes, we do iBuying, right? right? I don't think that's a thing you can be like, you can be half into, right? But you got to be all into or not. It's, it's beyond that, Greg. I mean, the, the problem with those iBuyer, so-called iBuyer programs is none of them are actual iBuyer programs, right? I mean, I haven't seen the details of this mm-hmm. program, but none of them are actual iBuyer programs. They're actual just listing lead programs with a addendum to like helping and, you know, doing investor lead. Right. Like, like, that's not an iBuyer. You know, that's not. No. And once again, it's, and the reason is because it's still agent centric. It's not consumer centric. It's not like Realogy when they did the Catalyst program went into going, okay, how do we really delight and, you know, make the consumer happy and remove their pain? Let's go, you know, copy whatever this iBuyer program. That's not what they did. What they did was we need to make sure that our agents do not lose listings to these, you know, Open Door and Zillow and Redfin or whoever, right? So how do we do that? Well, we need to have them be able to offer this option. So it's fundamentally agent-centric is my point. Keller, mm-hmm. whatever model they come up with, I can bet you it's going to be fundamentally agent-centric because that's fundamentally who KW is, right? I mean, you listen to Gary, you listen to you know everything coming out of everyone who's ever worked at Keller. It's all about the agent and you know living the good life. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it's all about the agent. Same thing with EXP, right? You could say they're fending them off, but EXP at the end of the day, it's fundamentally agent-centric. And that's fine. There are models that I think that works. But if we're going down that path, I look at the 100% guys and say, those guys are fundamentally far more agent-centric than you all. Because the 100% guys are like, it's all your money. Like, take it, and we just want a little tiny piece of it. So it just becomes a major, major problem. And again, the question is going to come back to, you know, if Keller Williams were public, the question, they're going to face the exact same question, which is, that's great for your agents. How does this make us money? How does this make you, the company, money? And there's no answer to that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the other things are just kind of like industry. Um, pro- like I was just reading, there was an update from Upstream mm-hmm. that they um, just did some sort of, uh, I guess they did a webinar. <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> hell, right? And, I, and I'm just thinking to myself, what broker in the right mind cares? Is that on their radar at all? I mean, they got so many other things to deal with and like, whether or not upstream is successful. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I think the issue is upstream is probably five years too late. I mean, if upstream really, when they, when did, when did upstream launch? Do you remember the specific year? They announced it five years ago. You're right. Right. So if they announced then, and then like six months later, they had a boom, here's the product and boom, here's the data. Here's, I mean, then I think it could have been really, really relevant, but now it's like, yeah, by the time they're, they're really rolling out and with core logic and all of these things, Brokers going to be facing a whole different set of problems where, you know, having your data be distributed through a centralized database is not going to solve any of those problems, right? I mean, if you're a traditional broker today, you've got to solve these problems. Number one, how do you make money from your productive people? No answer. Uh, number two, how do you prevent your top producing people from getting recruited away by Compass? No answer. How do you prevent your, you know, that, that sweet spot, the four to six deals a year agent? How do you prevent them from being recruited away by EXP or, you know, Realty One or HomeSmart or one of these 100% guys, right? There's no answer to any of those. So Teams, no answer, right? No answer, right? So it's like, 
So we're going to have the centralized database that's going to give us control over our listing data. Okay, that's cool. What does that do to help you with any of those four major fundamental problems? And on top of that, now we're looking at these uh, lawsuits and these, you know, these uh, regulatory things where help cooperating compensation might go away. Okay, well, how does upstream help you with that? No answer. You know, like it doesn't provide any answers to the problems that the brokers are facing today and will face going forward. If they had done that five years ago, then I think that it would have helped, you know, provide a lot of, you know, what the what the issues were because it had to do with recruiting, it had to do with agent centricity, it had to do with a, a lot of those things. Now, I'm not saying upstreams like it's it's still valuable, right? I still think something like that should happen, but it's just a little too late. That's my take on it, and it again goes back to some of these fundamental brokerage problems that people don't want to talk about, they don't want to address, they would rather just shoot the messenger, right? <laughs> and, right. And call me controversial. I'm like, okay, I guess. I mean, I don't think it's controversial to point out that a broker has no incentive to make sure that some new agent that's in a 60-40 split become a top producer and goes on a 95-5 split. I mean, there's there's no incentive for that. So until we kind of deal with these things, like sort of honestly, I, I don't know what's going to happen. What I think is quite likely is we'll just see you know, massive disruption that's going to be caused by a combination of technology on the one hand and just enormous amounts of capital flooding in from investors to these newer models that have a promise of doing something, of changing the whole thinking, the whole thought process. And then we've got all this pressure from, you know, government and lawyers and all this stuff. I mean, it, it sucks. My heart goes out to, you know, to the brokers and managers. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I, I didn't even, we didn't even talk about it. We, we did a whole podcast on the whole goddamn right. regulatory commission. I mean, that that's in their minds too, right? right. So right. all these things. Okay, let's go down the list then. I mean, sure. so if you start from the top, Realogy, right? Yeah. And there was, I think this is at the disrupt thing where everybody asked like, would you buy stock in Realogy? Would you invest in? So if I look at like, let's, I'll, I'll come down the gamut here. Okay. So Realogy, you know, traditional brokerage. Five years from now, I mean, how they changed? Realogy just breaks my heart, right? Because you know, I'm I'm from Realogy, right? Yeah, they're still a great company, right? They're still making an enormous amount of money. Their cash flow is still really, really strong. I think they have the right management team in place. The issue is debt. The fact that they've got something like three to four billion dollars in debt, it just really hampers them, right? And it actually even hampers like somebody coming in and snapping them up. I mean, because I get asked this question all the time at, Hey, you know, at five bucks a share or whatever it is, you know, shouldn't uh, some hedge, you know, some private equity guy come in. And like, the problem is if you're going to acquire Realogy, you have to acquire their debt. And that's not- Okay. But I mean, so five years from now, where are they? It's possible that they could be broken up. And okay. actually the, potentially the most likely scenario. Next one would be um, Remax. I mean, Remax is a little different because they've got this, you know, Seasoned agents, yep, right. A lot of them, hundred percent. A little bit different business model. Where are they in five years? I think Remax in five years, again, will either be. Are we talking about like they do all the right things, or they sure? Know? I mean, or what? What you think it's going to happen? I mean, they may they may do some right things. They may do some wrong things. They may do more right than wrong. Whatever you think. I think Remax five years from now probably becomes one of the larger, sort of hundred percent franchise models. In other words, I think they end up borrowing from, you know, kind of these the, the new breed of the hundred percent because the Remax is the original hundred percent, right? Right. So I think they end up going and borrowing stuff from guys like Realty One and Home Smart 
and just saying, you know, we just need to convert to that. Um, the problem with that, of course, is their brokers, so their franchisees, currently are not set up to actually make any money in that model. So they're going to have to go through this massive transformation where their franchisees can actually afford to make money. They got a better chance of, of kind of holding on than yeah, Realogy? I think so. Because they don't have debt. Right, they don't have three, four billion dollars in debt. Just yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting that small twist that they have, the way they do everything, the way their structures mm-hmm. up. I mean, I think I, I agree with you there. Yeah. Okay, Redfin, five years. I think Redfin is probably the number three largest brokerage. I think they're gonna be. I, I think they're dominant. I'm still very, very long on very yeah, yeah. on Redfin. I don't own shares in any of these. Yeah, companies, yeah. By the way, what about EXP? EXP, I think is interesting. Five years from now, where are they? If they do things correctly, then I think they probably transition to 100% model. So they end up competing with the Remax and you know Realty Ones and all these, HomeSmart and all those guys. If they stay the way they are, then five years from now, they're, they're nowhere. You know what I mean? Then, then they're you know a penny stock. And at some point, people will figure out like, it, it's cool that you're, you're paying your agents part of the commission with, with stock. But at some point, man, they're going to want cash. You know, so I think EXP ultimately transitions to two hundred percent model. I think they just. I mean, to me, their biggest thing right now is just let's get some leadership up there, mm-hmm. some really good senior leadership, and and have them stay. Mm-hmm. And I think if they do that, and there might be a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of people available to fill those positions <laughs> coming up, <laughs> if, if what you're saying is right too, right? So that's interesting. And then yeah. you know, to me, if we just go a little bit further down, yeah. I mean, you know, to not the non-publics, I guess. Um, that would be uh, Redfin, and or let's not Redfin, but I'm sorry, uh, Keller Williams probably is next. Keller Williams, Who? Howard Hanna. I mean, they're they're a big Realty One, Realty One, uh, Keller Williams, Berkshire yeah. Hathaway. Wait, well, yeah, Berkshire Hathaway. What do you, what do you say about interesting thing. Home services? I think is in a really interesting position, right? Because they actually have access to all the capital they could possibly want. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, like you know, they could literally buy the entire industry if they wanted to. And they haven't. You know, they, they've stuck to their kind of the tried and true, we're going to buy a, a strong regional independent and then fold them into the home services brand. And again, though, like from that standpoint, they- They're they just can, great operators, right? They're really yeah, great operators in the real estate business. They really so, are. But from a yeah. strategic standpoint, I'm not seeing them kind of, you know, go through like, hey, we've got $50 billion of Warren Buffett money. We're going to acquire everybody. Yeah. I'm not so they're they're like probably five years now. They're still around, maybe a bit smaller because so. the market's smaller. You know, I think. But five years from now, no, hold on, things can get really disruptive. I think five years from now, home services either become something that we can't even imagine. Right. In other words, the only way I see that playing out is home services just goes down the realogy path, where like agents are making money, but the company isn't. And at some point, Warren Buffett's going to cut. You know, he's just going to cut his losses, or. He's going to double down and really put some serious money into home services, and they become this super shop, right? They become, you know, like a W two Redfin, you know, with really strong teams and operators end up really emerging. I mean, I could see that happening as well. It all depends on well, whether. You know, one interesting thing is a lot of the uh, brokerages under home services actually, some of them actually use brands from Realogy. You could see maybe maybe you know how these financial instruments work where maybe in some weird way the debt works for some sort of tax loss going forward initiative that Warren like you know maybe. needs maybe um, and they maybe. end up buying Realogy maybe. right 
I mean, that would to me that would be the most logical sort of. He loves the brands. He loves Coke. He loves you know. Yeah, uh, but Coke, you know, Dairy Queen. Yeah, I mean, you know, those are, kind of things. But, but Greg, those are those are brands that have meaning to consumers, right? No, no, well, I, no, 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 no. I mean, I've I've seen the studies. I mean, like you know, Century Twenty One still is the most recognizable. I thought brokerage brand. Okay, so when a Century Twenty One super agent goes to Compass, like what they lose all their money? Yeah. Like, come on, we yeah. we know that. Yeah, no, they hire agents. They don't hire brands. Again, with yeah. the exception of Redmond yeah. and Rex and Trelora and you know some of these real super disruptive guys like Door, you know, out in Dallas, that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm seeing happen. This is going to be what happens if one of the truly disruptive things come about. So, you know, th- this is an interesting thing to at least talk about because I've had conversations about this at a recent conference I was at. And the question is something like this: You know, I, I I have the stupid bet. Do you and I have this bet? Are you? Did you take the other side? I don't think so. Okay. So the, the bet is 60% of all homes sold in the United States in five years will be iBuyer. Yeah, that's you're, 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 you're smoking crack. Right? So I have a yeah. bunch of bets going on with a bunch of my friends. And I'm happy to lose those bets because you know, <laughs> it just means I get to have dinner with them and buy them dinner. But <laughs> so the, one of the questions is, okay, so if 60% of transactions are iBuyer, what happens to agents? What happens to brokerages? And it actually raises some really interesting possibilities, right? So what I ended up, you know, having just having a conversation. So I'll, I'll ask you, what do you think? I'm like, wait a minute. In a world like that, couldn't an agent actually just have a practice where they advise people by the hour and get paid for it? So for example, uh, let's say uh, you're in you're in Phoenix. And every iBuyer is there, and eventually it's going to solidify, and there'll be three or four big guys you know, who kind of make bids in that market. So you go to your seller, and you say, hey, listen, look, I'm not looking to list your home and seller or anything, if, unless you want me to do that, but why don't you ha- let me advise you on these offers you're getting? And I'll charge you $500 for that. I mean, I could see that happening, right? Because even if I were in an iBuyer market, I'm still selling the most expensive thing I own. You know, I'm going to want some professional to help me and guide me. I think you're right, right there. I mean, they're going to come up. I mean, agents, they're going to, everybody's going to find a way to survive. Right. At least right. So ways, right? that would be one model for sure that I mean, if some agents will take, right? I mean, right. it almost reminds me of like attorneys. So like, That's exactly you know, right. sometimes they've got to like do some, like I'll do uh, wills yeah. for a while. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'll, I'll focus on. X, X for a while and build up some sort of nest egg or whatever, and then kind of, okay, now let me expand it, right? I mean, yeah, sure, why not? You know, and, or like buyer agents where you advise buyers, if you're going to buy from open door, like here's the things to look out for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. here's here's my open door, you know, um, consulting thing. It's 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 600 bucks. Right. right. I, you know, I don't know what happens in the, the brokerage model there, the broker agent model there, but um, yeah. maybe you have to be a broker to, to do that kind of practice. But yeah, who knows? Um, I think there's yeah. definitely something there. But at yeah. least, like in a in a real way, though, that helps agents, right? Because they're not now they're not driving some random asshole around for two weeks and then it's like oh, I decided to rent instead. Like, no, you get paid by the hour, so fine. You know, I'll drive you around all you want. That's possible, right? We'll see what we'll see what ends up happening. So, but so in a way, I kind of feel like. At least good agents don't need to panic because I have a feeling, you know, you and I tend to cause panics. Mm. <laughs> I don't think they need to panic. Bad ones probably need to panic, but you know what? They probably should panic because they're bad. 
brokers certainly need to panic a little bit because you got to answer those questions, man. You got to answer like, how, how does whatever you're doing make you money? Not make your agents more successful. How does it make you money? Uh, and a lot of times that brokers can't answer it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is kind of- I know some of our listeners, the brokers especially, can go, why don't you just give me the answer? Why do you have to just keep talking about this? Just tell me. Well, the, what to do? The, the answer from, from my standpoint is pretty clear, right? I, I wrote a white paper. It's on Notorious Rob, you know, called Future Brokerage. It's you go 100% and you operate a co-working space for real estate agents, or you go W-2 and you, you know, operate a real estate business. I mean, to me, it's those are the choices, which don't make me real popular among broker circles, as far as I know. But <laughs> yeah. I'm married to a broker, so you know, I know I'm safe <laughs> as long as she don't kill me. <laughs> if I remember, you uh, you had some news, didn't you? I do. So uh, I, I'm moving to be closer to Greg Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Next Wednesday, uh, the moving truck will be here, and uh, we're going to load up our, our stuff and move to Las Vegas. And uh, looking forward to days of driving across this great country. Obviously, we won't be recording any podcast. Blogging will be light. But the next time we record one of these, I will be doing it from the, uh, from the heat and desert of Las Vegas. Well, congratulations. That uh, sounds fun, right? I mean, you guys, uh, this is your second move in a, just a couple of years now, right? Yeah, you know, we're nomads. Like, we might as well, we might as well have yurts. <laughs> anyway, uh, so with that, uh, thanks again to all the listeners. Without you all, we wouldn't be doing this. I appreciate your attention. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks again to everybody who uh, nominated us, or I don't know how they do the nomination process. We're always thrilled um, to get this kind of recognition. So, as they say, it's just an honor to be nominated. And we appreciate. Um, but, and now uh, you know, thanks, everybody. If you tweet us a question, we will try to answer it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, Interactive uh, here. Yeah. Once again, uh, if you like this podcast, Greg, what do they have to do? Go to iTunes or wherever they kind of like their favorite podcast. Give it a five-star rating and also write a review. The whole written review stuff really helps us out, so please do that. That's right. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'll talk to you later, Greg. You too, man. Bye. Bye. Bye.